Stargate discussion podcast where we watch every episode of Stargate. I am Samantha, a super fan, and I am joined by two other hosts. Rose, another super fan. Malika, a super fan of this episode. Yay! Today we are discussing episode 15 of season one, Core Eye. So I wanted to start off with a question. Before watching Korai, did either of you think that we needed an episode about Teal'c's past? Hell fucking yes, <laughs> we did. I've been waiting for this episode and I've been specifically waiting for some reckoning between Daniel and Teal'c, which we get a tiny slice of in this episode, but about fucking time. We yeah. just earned our E rating for this episode. Good job. <laughs> First off, we start the episode in a seemingly deserted village. Uh, SG-1 has just come through the wormhole, and Teal'c says he knows this place. This world is called Cartago, and the Gaul visit regularly for harvesting. Gross. But wouldn't Teal'c have recognized this gate address? I don't know. There's a lot of places that he went. He would have, if he remembered like, what, 30 places, then he would have to remember 30 addresses, which means 30 times seven <laughs> place, little placements. What are those things called? Uh, coordinates. There we go. That's a lot of stuff to remember. But think like before cell phones, didn't you know like your 30 friends phone numbers by heart? I didn't have 30 friends. <laughs> I had like two good friends and yes, I did know their phone numbers, but there were not a lot of numbers there. Especially the friend that you would go to harvest their bodies. <laughs> you wouldn't know that number because you went through a lot. Oh, good point. Okay. Wait, not just that. When they are at the military base, they're not the ones putting in the code. So it's the techs in that room and they're just standing there waiting for the gate to open and then they go through. They probably didn't even tell Tilk this is where we're going. This he just dresses up and they just go through and see what happens. <laughs> You're like, oh, next one on the, on the list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because do, they do have mission briefings where they like prepare, but maybe they don't have the gate addresses. Maybe they just are like, this looks like an agrarian planet. Let's go. Maybe next time, next mission, they'll have Tilk <laughs> review the coordinates first. Yeah, be like, is anyone likely to kill you on this planet or to want to kill you on this planet? Let's just check. Because also not a surprising thing that might happen given his history. Also a planet full of white people again. Yes. And we have the white people. <laughs> yep. There was there was no diversity in that jury. Which <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to in a second. Do you think they do Korai often? I mean, it seems like they're trial, you know, their, their process for adjudicating wrongdoing. How often are they using this process and for what types of offenses? Yeah. Like stealing fruit. I mean, do they right. do Karai for that? <laughs> yeah. The whole Karai system is a little problematic. Of course, we're going to talk about that later. I mean, we're lawyers. We are lawyers. We're going to, this is right in our dork wheelhouse. It's like dorky sci-fi nerds and dorky criminal justice nerds combined into a giant dork fest. So while SG-1 is in this courtroom, the uh, inhabitants of this town, village, whatever, show up and we meet, I think his name is Hanno, right? Right. Hanno, yeah. I'm just going to call him the victim because that's essentially what he is in this episode. He pulls his bow on SG-1, but O'Neill sort of talks him down, but then they see Tilk and the victim yells, Jaffa! And you gotta do it in the in, you gotta do it in the Indigo Montoya accent. <laughs> it was very killed my father. Prepare to die. Okay, all right, all right, and then yeah, and then the victim says, "You killed my father. Prepare to die." That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> Did you notice that nobody else recognized Tilk? It was only Hanno, and he he will find out later that he was actually a child. 
when his father was murdered. I think that there is, at first I was like, is this a problem with cross-racial identification? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe they just see so many Jaffa that they can't, there's nothing particular about him because they come in and kill people all the time. And yeah. there's other races that inhabit those cobra heads. So the only minority faces that you see on a regular basis are Jaffa. And so you're here you have a minority face with the gold symbol on their forehead. Of course, you're going to think that that's the dude that killed your dad. Yeah, they, they can't do a uh, proper lineup in this world. Very yeah. suggestive, very yeah. suggestive. You would never hold up in trial. Tilk says he doesn't recognize him, but another villager urges the victim to take him to Korai. And the victim finally agrees, okay. So they go back outside and a bunch of old white ladies are starting to assemble in front of the Stargate. Daniel thinks they're coming from church. Why? I, I, I don't know. I don't know why. It was important to find out that they call the gate the circle of woes. The Cirque Carcona, I think is what they called it, which implies that only bad things come through the gate. But what I don't understand is why would you then construct your entire village feet away from this death circle of death, right? Like it's literally like 10 steps away and there's your marketplace. It doesn't make sense. Maybe so that they're always aware when it's activated. Why can't you just have a couple guards who like ring a bell? <laughs> I don't understand. You could be on the other side of the planet. It would take Apophis and the Jaffa a little bit of time to find you. Yeah, the lack of exploring the rest of these planets just drives me fucking crazy. What the hell is on the other side? Are there? Is this the only village? And how, after this many millennia, if you only have a village of 50 people, are you not like breeding yourselves into extinction with lack of genetic diversity also? Especially when the Gaul would come like what, every month to, to take some of your people away for harvesting? Are they, how often do they come? Are they replenishing the supply? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, there's no way that a small community that small could survive the like inbreeding for that long. Right. So the elder tells O'Neill that they can leave. Hooray, they can leave but Tilk has to stay behind. And the victim tells Tilk and the rest of SG-1 that Tilk will go through Korai and shows him a wooden cane. And I guess the wooden cane is what finally jogs Tilk's memory because we go immediately into the flashback scene of this guy screaming and yelling and Tilk is in full gowled armor and we see Apophis behind him urging Tilk to, to do it, do it. And Tilk fires on this this guy and we see a kid yell father and I, I, I think we're supposed to think that um the kid is the victim we come out of the flashback and I think Tilk Tilk does say I remember at this point and this is when O'Neill reminds Tilk of his Miranda Fifth Amendment rights don't say anything at all but Tilk wants to wave them even though I don't think he knows all of those Miranda rights <laughs> No, he's clearly not properly advised. This right. confession would never be admissible at all. Also, though, how typical is this shit? <laughs> You're telling your client, shut the fuck up. And all they want to do is talk, talk, talk. Well, he wants to explain himself. I mean, this, this is not legal advice, but shut the fuck up. If you are ever being questioned by law enforcement, shut the fuck up. Yep. They are not your friends. <laughs> do not unburden yourself. Do not. No, cops are not your friends, nor are the Bursai. Bursai? Bursans? I don't know. So the villagers start stripping Tilk of his jacket for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, Tilk yeah. looks very good, but really. And this is when they put Tilk in a cage. The optics of putting the only person of color in a cage, just not, not good. But isn't it lifelike? It is. It's very lifelike. But then, then you have O'Neill saying or asking for bail, which is even more of the nail on the coffin. But O'Neill's also trying to organize like a jailbreak. Yes. Like, he doesn't <laughs> believe in the justice system on this planet. I know. O'Neill's an abolitionist. It's interesting that you pointed out the optics here because 
again, I, was this just, we live in Vancouver and all we have is white people around us. So let's just hire a bunch of white actors. But like, it seemed like an episode where it would have made a lot more sense to have like people of color in the community. If your idea is to focus on the trial and focus on Teal's actions and his, and the need for accountability, which I think is valid, creating this racial dynamic where you again have the only the literally the only person of color on this whole episode in a jail cell mirroring the way people of color are treated in the criminal justice system it moved the focus to the system and not to the accountability i mean this is during the clinton administration this is during tough on crime this is this is during uh, super predators all that stuff i don't think that the writers room this was really their their thoughts when writing this episode but you know having the only person of color pretty much found guilty before he even gets locked in this in this cell everything's against him all the people who are watching are white your counsel is all white (laughs) yeah i mean i think I don't think this was meant to be a commentary on the criminal justice system. I think it was meant to be an accountability episode, but uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is situated in the nineties where there really wasn't an analysis of how fucked up the criminal justice system was, how fucked up our laws were, the racial disparities, all that is relatively recent in our sort of cultural conversation. Um, But watching it now, and I mean, the three of us have been like mired in this work for more than a decade. So we're very attuned to it. Um, and how much how much these optics really mirror the work that we do and exactly who we see in court being, you know, paraded before the court and who's representing them and how they're treated. And so I think we're probably more way more attuned to it than certainly these writers were in 1997. I didn't want this episode to pass without saying that when I'm in court, I mirror the people who are in the gallery whose cases we're waiting to call. The judge doesn't look like me. The district attorneys don't look like me. A lot of the other the defense attorneys don't look like me. But when I turn around and I look behind me, all I see are black and brown faces. And it, on a daily basis, upsets me to no end. So watching this episode, it mirrors my experience. O'Neill wants to break Teal out of jail, as Rose said. But Tilka doesn't want to be broken out of jail. He wants to face the music. Daniel urges Tilka and O'Neill to go to trial, to go to this core eye, because it sounds like a simple trial. What could go wrong? <laughs> Daniel sounds unbelievably naive here. Very. Yeah, have faith in the process. He's, the, yeah. he's one of those let the system work people. So I'm like, I'm guessing this is not your coming to Jesus on Daniel moment. <laughs> when... Uh... Daniel starts talking about Sheree in the sensitive portion. <laughs> I was like, if I could punch somebody, I would. It's all about Daniel. It's all about Daniel. Next up, we meet Tilk's appointed attorneys, three women who want to hear his confession. Rose, Malika, now when you first meet your client, do you go to them and say, okay, I want your confession to this crime? No. No. That will not foster a good attorney-client relationship. And by the way, they won't tell you that (laughs) if you asked it. But no, they'll tell the cops. They'll tell the cops. (laughs) (laughs) They'll confess to the cops. But then when you get in front of when they get in front of you, they're like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do shit. (laughs) I don't know what they're talking about. I didn't do I wasn't even there. And we also get this uh, interesting line from the appointed attorney that if he was innocent, then, then there would be no need for Korai. This seemed to me, a Korai seemed to be less of a trial and more of a, um, it almost seemed more akin to like restorative justice where there isn't really a question about who did it, right? Like, cause a trial is supposed to be a fact-finding procedure. And then, but like restorative justice practices, which this isn't because he's sentenced to death. That's not part of restorative justice, but no. it's more of like, okay, we know this happened. We know you did wrong. We have a victim. We have a per- person who committed a, a bad act. How do we reconcile and move on? And so it's more like not fact. It's more that stage, right? I thought it was more like a sentencing stage. I mean, even though yeah. yes, death is the default sentence. It seems to be in Korai, but 
Daniel, Carter, and O'Neill are trying to convince them not to, not, not to seek death. So they fire the appointed attorneys. <laughs> the public defenders. And O'Neill volunteers to be the attorney. Not the greatest idea. Carter and Daniel subtly convince him that it might not be such a, a good idea for O'Neill to be the, uh, the attorney. And they all end up being co-counsel. Yeah, practicing law without a license. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, also, you know, O'Neill asked the public defenders if they understood innocent until proven guilty. And then Daniel spoke up and was like, actually, only a few cultures do that. I think it's like, it's like based on the English common law tradition. But, yeah. you know, like I did take a, a comparative law class in law school. And it is like the adversarial trial process, innocent until proven guilty, is a uniquely like, not Western, but like in the US and in, in places that follow that tradition that were colonized by England. Um, use that system, but like the continental European systems are totally different. They're more like inquisitory rather than adversarial is where the court is more of the investigator. But do, so they don't have lawyers in France for criminal stuff? I mean, I don't know all that much about this type of system, but how do you protect the interests of the defendant? I mean, there's a lot of problems with the common law adversarial system. I, you know, we all know that, but the, the point of the public defender or the defense attorney is that like of everybody in the system, the person who has the most to lose, right? The person that's being accused of wrongdoing and could potentially be sentenced has one person whose only job is to protect them and to protect their interests. And that would seem to be necessary no matter what kind of system you have. I did want to bring in a Star Trek reference. Uh-oh. It's not uncommon in sci-fi shows to sort of make a like a, a colleague an attorney. We, we we people who have watched Star Trek have seen this in uh, what's it called? Not the Q trial. No, shoot. Is it the one where Wesley's on trial? No, Data's on trial. <laughs> Data's on trial. Oh, measure of a man. Measure of a man. Yes. Okay. We've seen this on the uh, episode <laughs> Measure like, of a like Man. Verified. <laughs> that is. Wow. I sort of can't even remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> you remember some random ass. I would trust Picard to be my attorney. I would not trust Jack O'Neill to be my attorney. No, I would not. Yeah. Out of these uh, three, I would want Sam to be my, not out of us three. <laughs> I would want both of you to be my attorneys, but... Out of these three, I would want Sam to be my attorney. She's the far smarter, uh, level-headed out of the three of them who would actually want me not to die and take steps to make sure that I don't. Because Daniel's way too into himself and O'Neill is way too aggressive. Yet she's not really part of this. She's standing there, but she doesn't really take an active role as being co-counsel. I found her very third chair, quiet third chair intern. She was definitely third chair in this trial. Yeah, I mean, Daniel is sort of the go-to for like diplomatic things, you know, but he's sort of like the like, oh, Daniel, you like make nice. You're the make nice guy, <laughs> which isn't really the role of a lawyer, but maybe when everyone's set on killing your friend, it's useful. So the next scene, Korai starts. The victim tells Teal'c that he is sorry. And everyone's like, huh? Uh, the victim then gets a stick, but he does tell Teal'c that the punishment is death. And O'Neill yells, objection! I love that. That was a very good way to yell objection. Yes, without any kind of <laughs> argument afterwards as to why he is objecting. You are not supposed to consider sentencing and deciding guilt or innocence. He's right. Yes, but aren't we in sentencing? I mean, the victim yeah, this is already. Point, he hasn't. He hasn't. He hasn't acknowledged that he killed his dad yet. I mean, we are in a weird land where the victim is also the judge, <laughs> and it seemed like uh, Hanno was going to, if the sentence for death was passed, he probably wanted to be the one to kill him too. So it's kind of like judge, weird. jury, and executioner. Yeah. 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 Well. Let's talk about this Korai <laughs> okay. legal system. This reminded me. So Hanno is, seems like he's the prosecutor and the adjudicator, right? So, so, the, so he's kind of the jury, the prosecutor, the jury, not so much the judge. It did seem like the panel of elders was like 
the judge in the sense that they're kind of referees, right? But they don't get to decide the verdict. He gets to decide the verdict and probably the executioner. There was this case that was released last week about the CDLA versus DMV case, which I love. And the court says it's unconstitutional. It's a violation of due process to have the role of prosecutor and the role of, or the role of advocate and the role of adjudicator be vested in the same person. And so the entire APS system is unconstitutional. Fantastic. But this reminded me of that. Like there's a reason why these roles are separate. There's a reason why everyone in the justice system is has a different job because you can't be an advocate for one side and also uh, impartially weigh evidence. <laughs> so I can think of a lot of people who would actually really like this system because there's so many times when you hear about victims who haven't been able to go to court and tell their story or to uh, address the judge uh, with what happened. We also hear this from uh, DAs. So I can think of a lot of people who would actually welcome this kind of system. Yeah, I think it's worth considering. I mean, you know, we're we're evaluating this from our perspective, which is like firmly rooted in like sort of common law adversarial practice with, you know, the United States constitution, which is very like focused on defendants' rights. Um, but it's not the only way to organize a justice system. And yeah, and, and there is, you know, victims' rights advocates all the time saying the victims are too removed from the way that we deal with criminal punishment in the United States, because it's not, it's not the victim, unlike a civil case, it's not the victim that's bringing charges, it's the state that's bringing charges. The victim has a role, but they don't get to decide if charges are, the case is dismissed. They don't get to decide what happens to the person if they're found guilty. And a lot of people find that unsatisfying and, and not right. Yeah. Especially when the, the elder, I think it was the elder woman said, who else can fairly say what the punishment should be? I mean, that's a compelling question. But like, why don't, why do we have such a aversion to that here? I mean, for really good reasons. Because victims are usually too emotional. Victims will, they will scream for death if the case is like graffiti. Yeah. That's why. And, and should you, you know, like should two people who do the same thing have wildly different punishments based on the fact that the two people they victimized have different feelings about how cases should be handled. Like we assume and prosecutors and the media always assumes that victims want puni more punitive measures. They want more punishment. They want more prosecutions. And that's not true. I mean, there's a ton of victims rights organizations that are not focused on that. Also worth noting that there, it's not like there's a discrete community of victims and perpetrators, right? Victims and perpetrators come from the same communities. M many, if not most of the people that are accused of crimes or have been victimized in their lives. And it's those you know, particularly poor communities, communities of color, and it's those set of victims that are the least listened to. And so it's a very like shallow way of looking at victims and what they want. And we also have to look at who the victim is, because just piggybacking off what you said, Rose, the minority communities, communities of color are the victims that are not listened to. Those people accused of crimes against white people get heavier punishments. Um, oftentimes they get the death penalty. They just get harsher punishments. Right, which also makes the whole, like, <clears throat> you know, the punishment should fit the crime and, and uh, equal protection. Like if you commit a crime, if two people committed a crime, the, the same type of crime, they should have the same type of punishment, right? Um, and if you have one victim who's like, behead him for breaking my car window and another one's like, just pay me $10 and we'll call it even, that's not fair. But that, what you just said, Rose, reminded me of the punishments for crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. So it's not just what the victim wants, it's also what the government puts in place, right? To punish one set of criminals more than another. It's inconsistency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's spread out. At all levels. Yeah, all levels. All right. levels. From policing, from who, who gets, what crimes get, treated as, or what acts get treated as crimes, which people get targeted for criminal enforcement, which who gets prosecuted, how severely they get prosecuted and how severely they get punished. So like top to bottom. I mean, there is this idea also of, and it's, this is in civil law and, and to some extent in criminal law of the eggshell plaintiff, mm -hmm. the eggshell yeah. victim. So if you do happen to, you know, steal fruit from a victim who wants to kill you, then that's kind of the victim you're stuck with. Yeah, tough luck. Eventually, Teal'c does remember, and he does confess to killing Hanno's father. 
but he does it on the stand, which <laughs> happens all the time. You get your client up there and your client's like, I did it. I did it. I did it. Yes. I ordered the code red. You're damn right. I ordered the code red. He did one of those. I don't know what you're talking about. That's from the few good men. Okay. Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. That's the only part I know. No, that's what he says before. Is that what he says before? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Then he says, you're damn right. I ordered the code red. That only happens on law and order. But there are many reasons why people choose to remain silent that have nothing to do with their guilt or innocence. Yeah, you hear that, people? (laughs) Then the next scene, they are in recess. And we have this great scene between O'Neill and Tilk. Tilk reveals that he killed the father based on Apophis's order. Um, But Tilk does uh, take responsibility for this death. Um, O'Neill brings up this, you know, the Nuremberg defense. Uh, you were just doing it under under orders. Um, but Tilk doesn't believe in that defense. He wants to take responsibility. And I just want to say, I, I love this scene. I want to put RDA and Chris Judge in a room and just have them act at each other. Yeah, I love, I like this. There's a few scenes in this, in this whole episode that I think are just fantastic. And this is one of them. And it's so obvious to me that O'Neill is is really struggling with what's happening, not just because his friend is in jeopardy, but he feels this, he feels this personally because he really identifies with the position that Teal's in. He knows he has done stuff as a member of the United States military that could easily have put him in that same circumstance. And I, you know, it's personal for him. It's not just, I don't want you to die. It's, I don't want to be thought, think of myself as a war criminal either. Malika, did you have any thoughts? I kind of do like about the rest retribution. I wanted to say something about like atoning for your sins, right? That desire to fix what you've done. And I think that goes along with Tilk being a new person. When he turned on the guards in Children of the Gods, he turned his life around. And part of that is apologizing and taking your punishment for what you've done in the past. So I can see where he's coming from. I don't think he should die for it, but I can understand why he would want to. Yeah. I mean, I think this scene really, it shifts the focus from the procedure, which we've talked about to the the accountability part, right? It's like, okay, we could say this procedure is unfair, all that. But the fact of the matter is Teal did do these things. He admits he did them. You know, is O'Neill right? Is, Is the Nuremberg defense a justification for doing horrible things? But then, I mean- I know that this ends the conversation whenever you bring up Nazis, but you can't follow every order. What is it? Was it my lie? Yeah, my lie. Yeah. There has to be a point where you say, no, I can't do this. But then again, if Tilk said, no, I'm not going to do this, Apophis would kill him and somebody like Shackle would come up and do worse. So what kind of position... Are you in? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it brings up a lot. I mean, because like you said, the Nazis, like do, does an average Nazi soldier really have that defense to say, well, I was following orders. So I like exterminated the Jews in this camp. No, I think there's a point in which you're like, no, that's a horrific crime against humanity. Any human being would know that and you don't get to hide behind the orders. But then you also had people who worked for the Nazis who did horrible things, but then also saved people. Like they, they did what they could. And had they not been there, more people would have been harmed. But in order to stay in that position, they had to, to do really horrible things. Like what, you know, so I feel like we're in that kind of gray area. What is, what is the punishment at the Hague? It's just imprisonment. They don't do, they the don't death, do death penalty. penalty. So maybe we should send a, a tilt to the Hague. <laughs> you should not be in this core eye. It should be at the Hague. So after Tilk confesses and they have the recess, Daniel starts to recognize this proceeding as more of a sentencing. Their goal is to prove that Teal'c is a, a different man, a changed man. And this is when we get into a lot of direct, horribly leading direct examination, some cross-examination thrown in. Not just that, but how are you first chair and also a witness? And also talking about your long-suffering love and loss of Sheree. Sheree. In this context, I actually think it's appropriate. I do too. (laughs) I know. 
<laughs> but Daniel is sort of an indirect victim of Teal's actions, past actions. So it kind of makes sense that Daniel should be sort of a character witness for, for Teal. No, I agree with you. But you can't be a witness and co-counsel. <laughs> well, no. That's all I'm doing. This is clearly a conflict of interest. <laughs> I, I did appreciate that he did say that he considers Tilk his friend. Like, I think that that maybe not ha- has absolutely fixed the relationship between them, but this is definitely a huge step forward for Daniel to say it out loud and Tilk to hear it. So maybe Tilk's guilt about Sheree is alleviated a little bit. But do you think this is the first time Teal'c is hearing this? This is what annoys me about this this season or one of the things. We're three quarters of the way through the season. This is the first actual time we have any kind of reckoning between Daniel and Teal'c about this issue, about Teal'c being directly responsible for taking Sharae away from him. This is the first fucking time. And and there, you know, we saw in Fire and Water, it's clear they're very close. Teal'c is his next of kin, taking his flag and everything. So I think they must have had this reckoning in private, but we never got to see it. And having seen, seeing it now makes the relationship make a lot more sense. And I wish we had gotten that in like the fourth episode or something. Well, I figured when, if you remember when they were at Daniel's house and they were cleaning up, trying to take away the classified information when they thought he was dead, Teal'c talked about the board game I can't remember the name of it, but he was saying that that Daniel has it also at the base and they played it. So I'm sure that this stuff has come up. And because Daniel never stops talking about Sheree, I am sure that that's what the entire board game night was was included, was Daniel talking about Sheree. So I know Malika, you still don't like Daniel, but to me, when Daniel's talking about Sheree and, and how he thinks of Teal, I mean, that is Daniel to me. Like that's, he is a very forgiving person. I mean, I, I think he's legitimately could have been like, I can't work with this guy, right? Whatever else he might've saved our lives, whatever he, he killed my wife essentially. And I can't work with him and I can't forgive him. I think that would have been a reasonable thing to do, but he's not, that's not who he is. I'm not saying that Daniel's not a good person. I'm saying he's an annoying person. <laughs> I'm not saying he doesn't have a good heart because I do think he has a good heart, but I want to punch him in his face. But then, but I know that he will forgive me. He would forgive you. (laughs) And so I punch him in the face again. (laughs) Daniel comes up with this, what he thinks is a defense. I I don't know, but he, uh, he gets this defense from talking with the, the fired appointed attorney. She tells him that they they don't sleep in the village. They hide or they sleep in the hiding, which are, which are caves and tunnels that they they go to when the Gawuld come through the Stargate, and they don't leave anybody behind. So they wait for the slowest person to go hide with them. And Daniel thinks that this is some kind of defense. What do you guys think about this? I see where he's going with. I mean, at this point, let's let's say you're in this position. At this point, you're looking for anything that's gonna keep your your client out of the electric chair but it's the you know kill one person to save save them all oh yeah I mean I am highly uncomfortable I mean I think this comes out more when he actually cross or uh, direct examines Teal'c and gets him to talk about why he chose that man Um, and the the implication is he chose him because he's disabled and you know he killed him for the good of the community and that is horrific what you're and everyone sort of acknowledges that it was the right thing to do But the idea that it's like less bad to kill disabled people because they're slowing you down is pretty awful. Yeah. I'm going to say something a little unpopular. Keep the slow or or disabled people in the caves. Only keep your your fastest runners working the market. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it seems to me like if that's your strategy, then we're going to figure it out, right? Make him a wheelchair or like, yeah, like keep them further away from the Stargate so they don't have as far to go. And it's not just him. Like kids can't run that fast. Pregnant women can't run that fast. Like, are you going to shoot them too? And older people? Yeah. Like this is not okay. This whole thing is not okay. Right. But, you know, it wasn't just killing the disabled person. It was Apophis said, kill one or I'm going to kill them all. So is it kind of a necessity defense? Yeah. And I'm surprised he didn't say, like, I would have respected it more had he said he was telling me to kill him. 
right? Like he was reaching out his hand, looking at him in the eye and, and saying like, pick me, pick me. I thought he was pleading with Teal not to kill him. I, I didn't read really? that in, in uh, the, the, the father's expressions, no. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they could have made it clearer. They mm-hmm. should have had uh, Hanno's dad say, take me, volunteering to die, which is still not a defense to murder. Yeah, I don't think that would have changed Hanno's mind about Teal. And this is when O'Neill and Carter decide they need to go back to SGC for reinforcements. Did O'Neill call this a kangaroo court? Yes, yes. he did. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because to me, this seemed like anything but a kangaroo court. This seemed like a genuine process. I mean, there's issues with it, but it it seemed like they really did put their faith in this procedure. procedure and I, I think that defies the definition of kangaroo court. I think we have a couple, we practice in a couple of kangaroo courts. <laughs> to be honest, we can do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> And we go back to the trial. Daniel is engaging again in more direct examination of Teal and then, and then cross-examination of the victim and then back to Teal again. <laughs> Very fast-paced trial here. But Daniel's making making the point that Teal chose a lesser of two evils, killing a disabled man um, instead of having Apophis kill them all. The victim confirms that yes, his father was not fast. So Tilk's defense, not that he's presenting one. So Daniel's defense for Tilk is actually, <laughs> Tilk did you guys a favor. Yeah. <laughs> like, fucked up. Yeah, killing your slowest one so you guys can all get away and protect everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it's, it smacks of like eugenics of like, you know, let's just have the strong survival of the fittest, like all kinds of really, really horrific anti-disabled ways of thinking. Exactly. So the victim doesn't want to hear this. He is not buying this changed man defense. He isn't buying this uh, kill one to save the many. And at this point, it kind of reminded me of Spock's whole the needs of the many. Yeah. The what needs of the many outweigh the <laughs> needs of the few or the one. Thank you. I have, a, I have um, a Christmas ornament that says it when you push the button. What? <laughs> it was a gift from somebody. I didn't buy it for myself. It doesn't make it better. Because you would have. If somebody said, look at this ornament, you would be like, I think I'm going to become a Christian so I can put this on a my tree. <laughs> I'm like Hanukkah butch. So what would Spock say about this whole defense? What do you think? Malika, do you have any thoughts? About Spock? Yes. <laughs> I know nothing about Spock. I, am, I do think that if you remove emotion from something like this and it's just a logical argument which I believe is whole Spock's whole thing right then it makes sense the question would be why would you wait for Tilt to do it if this community was more Spock-like when they just murder their most vulnerable people people can't run as fast I don't think the Vulcans would do that no I don't think so they wouldn't be part of the Federation if they did that <laughs> I'm just saying, you you twisted your ankle. Time to die. They would have given him a fucking wheelchair, <laughs> or like they would have done what you said. Like, been like, okay, we have people that we have to protect that can't run quickly. How do we accommodate that? And they would have done a lot better job of these people. They would have like a hover bed. I mean, come on, this is Star yes, Trek. Exactly. <laughs> they, this, they would they would be looking down on these people with upturned noses. Oh yeah. And then we hear Hanno's final question to Teal. Uh, can any of Teal'c's present or future actions bring back his father? And no, dude, of course not. So, but it brings the question, is, can there be accountability when the harm can never be fixed, right? Like, you know, when we talk about like restorative justice, you're talking about somebody who was harmed facing the person that caused the harm and them sort of dealing with it, having an accountability process and moving forward. That is very hard to do when the person that was harmed is dead, Right. So is there, a way, is there a way that you can redeem yourself from that? Yeah, or what if the victim is um, like a, a rape victim? How do you get back from that? You don't. Yeah. There was this episode of Black Mirror about retribution for, I believe it was the murder of a child. And this woman was forever being put through the loss of 
of a child she didn't it wasn't her child it was just a child but she thought it was her child it was such a good episode like and so that was her punishment is to suffer the pain of the victim forever they do that actually a lot in star trek i I can think of three episodes off the top of my head where they have the defendant relive he doesn't relive the victim but i think he relives his own experience as he or she is murdering this this person oh the voyager episode the Voyager episode, I think it happens in uh, DS9 too with um, <laughs> Chief O'Brien. Doesn't he relive something? He lives, he does 20 years of, of prison oh, time in time. his head. Yeah, I love that episode too. Also, Stargate season nine or 10, so I know you haven't seen it. There's a complete ripoff of that Voyager episode with Cam Mitchell. So we will have a chance to talk about it in this podcast in like 15 years when we get to season 10. Well, there's a Black Mirror episode that is like that they can dial it up so that the person is suffering or whatever. They're only, it's like a day for us, but it, for them, it's like 20 years. I mean, cause that's what I love about sci-fi, you know? And like the thing that annoys me about this episode is we have all these good questions about accountability and following orders and um, redemption and all this stuff, but it doesn't actually imagine a form of accountability other than death and imprisonment right it's like the same old same old when yeah like that like how how can we imagine moving past these things other than these ways that we've always done that don't really work tilk is guilty and will face execution that is the final decision from hanno next scene we're in the boardroom with hammond o'neill and carter o'neill and carter are trying to convince hammond to send in the assault force and Hammond is not buying it. And he manages to say with a straight face that the U.S. is not in the business of interfering <laughs> with the affairs of others. What the uh-huh. fuck? Which uh-huh. was like the funniest uh-huh. line I've ever heard. <laughs> well, O'Neill calls him on it. He's like, since when, sir? Yeah. And then Hammond says, since this administration. So we're obviously not talking about the actual administration of the Clinton, right? Clinton years, because that would not make any sense. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense for all the administrations. <laughs> I mean, I don't know a lot about George Washington, but <laughs> I am sure revolutionary. he was meddling in the affairs of others too. Yeah. And I want to say that Carter does provide the, like I said before, Carter does provide the best argument when she calls Teal a valuable resource and, and they would lose him if they allow Teal to be executed. And then Hammond calls Teal a war criminal and says that we're, we're not going to go, you know, rescue a war criminal, which is complete BS considering USA's actual history with war criminals. How many Nazis worked in NASA? Come on. Like, this is crazy. I I mean, I've always liked Hammond, but this time he was just like such a dick. I'm going to disagree. First, I love this scene. This may be my favorite scene of the whole episode. Because I, I just love the dynamic between Hammond and O'Neill. I think it really gets at to some, some things that are hovering over this whole series that really come out here. Um, and I love Donis Davis and this scene. I think it's just great. Now, aside from the fact that he, this is complete hypocrisy, let's put that aside. I think he's right that you don't get to just go into places and say, we think your justice system sucks and we're going to, you know, take our person back by force when they have a legitimate grievance against Yolk. They seem to be putting forth a legitimate criminal process. It's unfair. There's, there's due process issues, but it's not, it's not like they just shot him or they just arrested him and said, we're going to execute them. They are giving him a trial and Tilk is admitting he's guilty and Tilk doesn't want to be rescued. Tilk has made that clear. I want to stand trial. I want to account for what I've done. Now, aside from the fact that we don't seem to care about our own work, work criminals, Let's pretend we did. You know, is it right to take Tilk away from this process of accountability when everyone except Jack feels that it's right for him to go through it? And O'Neill seems very much like part of his resistance is, would you let them do this to me? That's really what he's saying is, would you let them do this to me? Well, it's it's hard to think that that Hammond is right when he's using such hypocritical reasons to justify his argument. And I can definitely understand why, why uh, O'Neill has a stick up his butt about this. Because he is seeing himself in, in, in Teal. Like, this is what would happen to O'Neill if he was sent to The Hague. But maybe that's what should happen to O'Neill if he was sent to The Hague. I mean, we don't know what O'Neill has done, but he did covert ops, we know, in at least in Iraq. 
if the, if the Hague was like, we're trying all war criminals for indiscriminate targeting of civilians, here's your trial, maybe he should stand trial. For those damn distasteful things. I like that phrase. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But he's not, I mean, the Hague is not going to kill anybody, right? So this is leaving Tilk to die, period. And all you have to do is muster a couple guys, like 15 guys, to go just intimidate these people and take Tilk back. I mean, the United States, isn't this, this is during the School of the Americas. We are teaching soldiers to be war criminals and sending them back to their countries. So it's, it, the hypocrisy is gross. And I mean, we can quibble about what the right thing is, but I think the right thing is to go get this beautiful, muscled man. <laughs> but even though he doesn't want to go i mean he's saying i don't want you to do this is it fair let's say hammond agreed to go in and rescue somebody who doesn't want to be rescued i mean that's what you do with colts right yeah you go in you take them out and then you deprogram them i i mean and that's kind of how i see tilk he is punishing himself he's willing to die even though he is doing everything in his power to change what he's done in the past and correct his sins. So yeah, he needs to be deprogrammed. But does Tilk have a death wish? Yeah, I have, a, I have that note. Because we already know Jack has a death wish and Daniel has a death wish. Are we now adding a third suicidal member to SG-1? Well, do you think, I mean, this is probably premature to ask this question, but does it change for him? Does this episode turn him around and make him not so much wanting to die for his sins i think this episode is like step one of this character arc for tilk one more thing before we move on i feel like i've been thinking about getting a new tattoo and (laughs) i think after this episode i want to get a tattoo of um the united states is not in the business of innocent (laughs) in other people's (laughs) affairs i love it i think you would regret it though O'Neill wants Hammond to call the president. I think he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Well, yeah, at the next uh, the next time we find out that Clinton has not authorized. <laughs> Bill Clinton has some issues. He's got, he does not have time for this. He's got all his ladies that he's sexually harassing to pay off. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I think that Clinton would authorize this because he really did need the black vote. <laughs> I don't know that Teal counts as the black vote. No one knows about him. No yeah. one who votes knows about Teal. Definitely nobody black because we don't see those. People. They don't exist. <laughs> they don't exist. Okay, back to jail. So women are painting Teal. Why Was that necessary? <laughs> or did they just want to touch him? Maybe they just want to touch him. They're like, oh yeah, this is definitely part of the ritual. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just take off your shirt. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, that was so, it was so weird. Why would you, why would you have your public defenders paint swirls on your chest and back? Um, Cause there was that one who was really like into massaging his back. You don't do this for your clients. <laughs> I don't. It was weird. Back to the boardroom. Hammond says no dice, no assault on, on the Bursons. And he agrees with the president's decision. So is this in accord with Hammond's character or is this kind of an out of character moment for Hammond? I can kind of go either, either way. I thought it was in character. We do see situations where Hammond chooses to act in a restrained way and, and the team not like that decision. Carter and O'Neill go back to Cartago and the village has been attacked. Uh, the Gaub have come conveniently while Carter and, <laughs> and, and, and O'Neill have been away. How long were they gone? And I don't, so, and they discuss this later because I guess Hano thinks that they brought the ghoul, that they, and Daniel says something like, well, they're not stupid. They saw them go back. I didn't understand that whole thing. Like, is this pure coincidence or were the ghouls watching, like monitoring them? And this is coincidence. Yeah, I, the whole thing didn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, we have a little bit of a premonition about what's going to happen because Hanno says that they're due to come back. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it just, yeah, it's perfectly in the time <laughs> within the couple of hours before Tilk is murdered. And I guess yeah. everyone was just held up in this courtroom. So they didn't have time to run away. And maybe that's why the Gaul got the, um, the drop on them. And it was random that Shackle was in this group because it did, didn't he become first prime after uh, Tilk left? I think he's not first prime yet. Didn't he say you're gonna you're this is gonna ensure my elevation to first prime? But he does have the gold forehead, so yeah. he's sub first prime. So maybe this is an order from Apophis to come and you know round up more more people for harvesting. The return of Shackle. <laughs> yeah, very brief return. O'Neill and Carter sneak around. They find out that the jail has been broken into and Tilk is gone. They take out some Gawuld. By tripping. By tripping. <laughs> they trip a Gawuld and they take his... his yeah, they take his snap weapon. Yeah, Jafar, yeah. Right. And we cut back to the courtroom. Uh, the victim is there. <laughs> Painted half-naked Tilk is there. Daniel's there. Well, Hanno tells, like, this little boy... There's like all these people in there, but he's like, I'm going to go to the eight-year-old little boy and tell him <laughs> what my wishes are if I am murdered. So yeah. was this supposed to be Hanno's son? Because that's kind of where my head went to. I, th- I thought so too. Then the son betrayed his, his dad, if this is the son, by giving the knife to, or giving a knife to Teal. That was weird. Yeah. That's a lot to put on a kid is like, make sure my death sentence is carried out. <laughs> If I am murdered, yeah. yeah. But the, the kid handled it well because he's like, I don't care. I'm sure. going to give a knife yeah. to the guy. Kid was smart. He's like, you know what? There's a tied up Jaffa that's on our side. Maybe I should let him go. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Until promptly uses that knife to take Shackle out, which I mean, with the Wicker people, we saw that Tilk wanted to turn shackle and shackle wasn't having it having it so Tilk is like i'm done you're dead he does but say didn't he, he apologize to him yeah he he say, i'm sorry sorry oh, that was a nice moment did yeah. he have to knife him like did he just hit him over the head with the knife <laughs> i don't think that would have had the same effect <laughs> so outside the persons burst out of the courtroom yelling with their little bows uh, but Hanno does get the chance to see Carter and O'Neill fighting as well. So he realizes that they did not call the Gawuld. And then back inside the courtroom, Tilk is freed. He uses the knife to free himself and he takes a flying leap. And of course is hurt in the process. Of course. Tilk still refuses to leave. And at this point, he gives the, the, uh, the cane back to Hanno. And Hanno looks at it and suddenly tells him you're right you are a changed man i totally agree with you now go in peace it was super cheese but i cried (laughs) whenever i see a half naked hot dude crying (laughs) i will shed a tear I don't know. I thought this redemption was a little too easy. Like you, they spent this whole episode setting up this like really intense tension between what he did and who he is and all that. And then they just like gave it away so easily at the end. Yeah. There needed to be a little more angst before that, that turnaround. Cause I, you know, I really don't think that Tilk is a changed man. Like he's not a different man. He had this arguably compassionate idea to save the village. I mean, that's, even though that, that theory is flawed, it did come out of a compassionate side. But there does need to be some kind of reconciliation, some redemption for what he did. And this is this is the point where I ask you guys, did this episode give you that redemption? It did for me. I mean, <laughs> I hope moving forward that he is able to find some closure that this creates some closure for him. Was it easy? Yes. Was it ridiculous? Yes. But we have to take what they give us and be like, I'm going to make this happy for me. (laughs) And Tilk. What do you think, Rose? I mean, I feel a little cheated by this ending. You know, in general, I do like this episode. I I think they made a solid effort at dealing with, you know, Tilk's past and, and, 
not only Tilk's past, I think O'Neill too, and and wrestling with the characters and all this stuff. Um, I, I just wish it was, I wish they had carried it through to the end a little bit better instead of doing the, the thing they always do, which is make everything okay through some act of heroism. Um, it's just, it's just a little too, too easy. Yeah, and the episode ends with SG-1 helping or offering to help out the Bursons. So what are they going to give them? Because the Bursons don't have, they have bows and arrows and a lot of fruit. What are they going to do? Maybe they can give them an iris to start with. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Why iris. don't give those? Seems like a real easy defense mechanism. Do you think they gave them guns? Maybe guns. Some kind of like, maybe they have a team that just stands there and guards the gate. Manpower. Hmm. I mean, if we're talking about maybe things change though, also we don't, once, once they get the Google get resistance, we don't know if that like increases the frequency that they come to back to this planet. But if all they're talking about is like defending against like, I don't know, once every six months harvesting trip, I mean, it doesn't sound like it would take much. Maybe relocate them to a different part of the planet. <laughs> they can't get to, <laughs> maybe there's a nice mountain range somewhere that's really hard to access. They can move there. So do you think Teal'c has forgiven himself the dude has a lot of demons <laughs> i don't think that this episode wraps those up in a tiny little bow but i think that it is a step closer like at least on this planet he has gotten redemption right he's got like a million other planets where he has killed people's families but at least on this one he's gotten redemption yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Teal'c is not like, well, you have Daniel, who's like, so it's such an external processor. <laughs> you kind of have more of a sense of where he lies in his processing. And Teal'c, you don't really get that. He's he's not that open. So I, I think this is a step, but I think he has a lot of, like you said, a lot of demons to wrestle with. What do you think, Sam? No, I, I, I agree. I think this is the first step in his emotional arc. Well, isn't there, um, I know that there's a step, I don't know which step it is in AA, where you have to apologize to all the people that you've done wrong. Step and nine. So, okay, step nine. And so this is his first one, but I'm sure it's going to be a long, long process. So this is where we assign a rating to the episode. Rose, what is your rating? I'm going to give this one a six, which is higher than I thought I would give it. I was like bouncing between five and six. I like the criminal justice aspects of it. I really like that you have the main characters in this show disagreeing on the right thing to do. And they all have a point. And that doesn't happen that often. All right, Malika. I initially was going to give it like a 6.5, maybe even a seven, but uh, after this discussion, I'm going to give it a six. I, I thought it had a lot of parallels to what we do every day. And I thought it also was important that we had some kind of atonement for Tilk's past behavior. And of course, I always like a, an episode about Tilk with <laughs> as little charade as possible. What about you, Sam? Oh, man, I... I really want to give this a seven, but I am bothered by uh, some of the, the weaknesses that we talked about. Give it a seven. Okay, I'll give it a seven. <laughs> I have Malika's approval to give an episode <laughs> a seven, Chef Ron. Uh, yeah, I, I love, 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 love that scene between Chris, Judge, and um, RDA. I, I love the camera work where it sort of um, zooms around Tilk as he's giving this this speech. I love their interaction. And I also really appreciate the, the, um, the themes of that scene as well. And Tilk's emotional arc, uh, I'm there for it. It always lands for me. So yeah, I'll give it seven chevrons. So if this episode was shown today, how would it be different? I think there's two things that come to mind. One is you would not have a planet full of white people. It just, it just wouldn't happen today. Uh, and I think having having a planet that wasn't exclusively white people would change the optics of the episode and how we see it and our the way, you know, the parallels to our criminal justice system and all that. And I don't think that ending would be quite as neatly tied up. I, I would agree. And I would also throw in that I would hope that there would be some more female voices because the only time that we really hear from Sam is when she's 
arguing with Hammond, the rest of the time she's pretty silent. I mean, it's all Hanno and Tilk and O'Neill and Daniel. That's pretty much it. They did make them attorneys though. That was nice. Female attorneys, even though they were fired. <laughs> they hear a confession and then paint on the, a naked man's chest. <laughs> what we do, right? Yeah, that's about I guess it. That's, that's what they think we do. So thank you so much. I hope you join us next time. We will be discussing episode 16 of season one, Enigma. Bye. Next week. Bye. Bye. I mean, this, this is not legal advice, but shut the fuck up. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.